Remain standing just a little bit longer, please, as we read the Scripture this morning. Coming from Daniel chapter 11, starting with the 36th verse. And the king shall do all as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the ones beloved by men and women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortress with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge Him, He shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack Him, but the king of the north shall rush upon Him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships and shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hands. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and the silver and the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and shall go out with great and, <clears throat> and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall <clears throat> excuse me, and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. You may be seated. They know it by road. I didn't even get a chance to say it. <laughs> We've been going through the book of Daniel. and We have just a couple of more messages to share in this book. And today we are looking at the end of Daniel, those scriptures that I just read. And as we get there, we just I want to kind of review the whole book quickly, uh, verses 1 through 35, which we did last week. Uh, This prophecy is an amazing thing. It covers such a tremendous amount of history. And for Daniel, as he was sharing all of this, I think I shared this last week as well, but as Daniel was sharing all of this and, and as it was coming to him, it was all future. For us, we can say it, it, that it's, you know, looking at least from 30, verse 35 back in chapter 11, it's all history. And the neat thing about it is, is that we can validate through history that these things actually happened. And again, it never ceases to amaze me when we look at the, the prophetic pictures of God, that God puts forth to see 
how they have come to pass. And as a result, we can have absolutely absolute confidence that what he says is yet to happen is going to happen. It's uh, it, it just to me is an overwhelming thing and an overwhelming faith builder to see the prophetic pictures that have been fulfilled. I, I, I go back and I look at Psalm 22, for instance, that talks about Jesus literally on the cross. His hands are, 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 are nailed. His feet are nailed. Uh, he, it's, it's an amazing picture. And at that point in time, the cross wasn't even used as a form of punishment. And yet here's a clear, distinct picture of how Jesus would be crucified. Isaiah speaks of it, especially in chapter 53. And, and so we go through all of these different things that, that we see in Scripture and just, again, over and over and over again, we see these prophecies fulfilled. Hundreds of them. Not just a few, but literally hundreds of them. So here in, in chapter 11, in the first couple of verses, uh, the, the angel as it's giving this vision to, to Daniel, uh, and as he will write it down and it becomes the prophetic message of this, of the, the end of the book here, he speaks that there's going to be four Persian kings that are going to come. And then after that, in verses 3 and 4, he speaks about Alexander the Great. And, and, uh, and yet, something's going to happen. It doesn't just say he's going to die young, but the implication is there. And as a result, his kingdom is divided into four parts. It's exactly what happened. And, and these uh, four generals take over uh, the, what was the kingdom of Alexander uh, the Great. Uh, in chapters 5-20, through 20, it talks about two kings, one in the north and one in the south. That's two of the districts of, uh, that were uh, Daniel's provinces, uh, or uh, the provinces that were taken over by the, the generals. And they are constantly at war with each other. One overcomes the other, and the other overcomes the other. It's back and forth, back and forth. Constantly in war. And by the way, I pointed this out last week. Uh, who's caught between the northern king, which is Syria, and the southern king, which is Egypt? Who's caught right in the middle? Israel. And it's frequently the actual area of the battleground where these two armies will meet and, and fight each other. So Israel is just overcome over and over and over again. And as soon as all of this comes to an end for Israel, they're taken over by Rome. So they, they never have their freedom again. And so, uh, this goes on and on through the, the book of, of, of Daniel chapter 11. And then in verse 21 through verse 35, where we really focused last week, was Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus the Magnificent. Yeah, that was his own title given to himself. Uh, and he basically uh, is, is a wicked man. In fact, look at the, the, the chapter 11, um, verse, uh, I think it's verse 21. It says, uh, In this place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. In other words, he's not of royal lineage here. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And the idea of flatteries is, is connecting with the right people and bribing and, and different types of things to, to get the, and usurp the power. And, and so the, here's this picture. Contemptible. 
I don't know, what comes to mind when you hear the word contemptible? We're a small group this morning. What comes to mind when you hear the word contemptible? Anybody? Bunch of bold people this morning. <laughs> contemptible. What's contemptible? Well, how about uh, uh, deserving of, of, of uh, uh, scorn? A contemptible person is someone who is deserving of scorn. He has such an attitude uh, about himself. He, he, he does nothing but things for himself and therefore has no relationship with other people. It's always me. And never anyone else. That's who this guy was. He just could think of nothing but himself. Uh, there was uh, the the one definition that I was coming that came up as as one of the Hebrew defining words, uh, arousing an attitude of moral indignation. I thought, thanks a lot. Uh, but arousing an attitude of moral indignation. I mean, he causes people. To become angry with a with a with a sense of morality, immoral indignation means I have a right to be angry. This guy is off the wall. You know, this is what he brought out of people. And so here he is. He's he's bribed his way and 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 and, and tricked his way into leadership, and and now he's in control. He calls himself Epiphanes the Magnificent, and and he's engulfed, if you will, with himself. And and so, here he comes in, 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 in verses 25 through 27, it talks about his, his battles and his conquests. And then in verse 30, it, it talks about the fact that he'll have a defeat which will drive him back, with, a defeat with Egypt which drives him back to his, his own fortress and, and land. And he goes with such tremendous anger that as he goes through Jerusalem, he stops, or Israel, he stops in Jerusalem and just levels it. And he profanes the temple. And we talked about this in detail, but he sacrifices a pig in the temple and then sprinkles the blood of the pig all over the Holy of Holies and, and, and around in the temple, defiling it in such a way that the priests felt they couldn't go into the temple because it was unclean. And so it becomes the word desolate. And so they call this the abomination of desolation. And, and, and his, his cruelty is brought out here. He killed literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Over 80,000 Hebrew people died during this rage of his as he went through Israel and, and, and destroyed Jerusalem. He wasn't a nice guy, obviously. We just get that picture very clearly. He's considered one who would be a shadow or a type or a forerunner, in, in, in a sense, of what the Antichrist will be when he comes. The Antichrist is who we're going to be looking at this morning, starting with the scriptures that we read this morning, starting with the eleventh chapter of Daniel, verse thirty-six, it says, "And the king shall do as he wills; he'll exalt himself, he'll magnify himself, 
above every God, and he shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. This is going to be during the end times, the last seven years of, 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 of Daniel's prophetic picture of the 70 weeks. The last seven years. And this Antichrist, if you will, uh, is, is one who will come and, and the first thing we see is his wickedness and his self-aggrandizement. I am the one you are going to yield to. Period. And then he speaks of God in blasphemous ways. He, he, and, and he speaks, you know, of, of just, uh, it'll speak of Christ in blasphemous ways. And this is this picture that, that, that Daniel is getting of him. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers. In other words, wherever he comes from, from whatever background he comes from, he'll pay no attention to his upbringing or, or his religious training. Some think he's going to be a Jewish person. Others think he's going to be a Muslim. Some think he's going to be uh, someone from the, the, even the United States as possible. Man, you've got to hear all the, over the years all the different people that were believed to be you know, the Antichrist. Some of them certainly were shadows again of the Antichrist. Adolf Hitler being one of them. But, you know, the, the, the reality is, is that, uh, you know, he, he's engulfed with himself. He's, he's obsessed with himself. And, and so he sees himself, he's, he's seen himself even as a god. So he pays no attention to the gods of his fathers or to uh, the one... Uh, that says, beloved by women. I don't have a clue what that phrase means. I have looked it up in umpteen different places and each one had something different to say about it. But the idea is, is that he, he doesn't observe anything of the existing cultures. He's creating his own environment completely as to who is going to be at the head and who is going to be worshipped. He shall pay no attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. The God of fortresses is, is in reference to the God of war. The God who, who fights, the, the, the battles. Okay? And so he's going to be you know, seen as one who is obsessed with war, with conquering, taking. It says, a God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and costly gifts. A God that he, that uh, his fathers did not know. Let me take a, a, a shot at this in the sense that what we're looking at is someone who is looking at evil as I gotta be careful how I say this. He's looking at evil as if it were from his perspective good. 
So anything that it, we would look at as morally indignant, morally corrupt, he would look at as something good. And so they're saying, we don't, we, we don't understand the, the way this man is, his, his forefathers and this type of thing. His culture that he is in is, is just blown away by him. He's a god of war. He's a man of war. Uh, he's a man of immorality. Uh, he shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of the foreign god. And, and most everybody uh, believes that this foreign god that he is involved with, if you go to Revelation, it calls him the beast, but we're talking about something empowered by Satan. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. In other words, if you like me, I'll, I'll reward you. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. In other words, I could be bribed. You have enough money, you can have this or you can have that. He's in it for himself. All the battles that he fights. And then, again, we see in verses... uh, 44 through 45, there's a sense of his anger. I'm not going to reread that right now, but, and then a sense of his destruction. And he is basically alone when it ends. There's nothing that comes to his aid. Let me give you a better picture here. Who is the Antichrist? Well, like I said, he's seen in types and shadows. Uh, I would say that any leader who denies Christ is a shadow, at least, of the Antichrist. Any leader that denies Christ is at least a shadow of the Antichrist. Paul gives us some insight with this. He is writing to the Thessalonians. In fact, this is his second letter to the Thessalonians. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, this is Paul's term for the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God Proclaiming himself to be God. He will sit in the rebuilt temple in Israel. The temple will be rebuilt. And it's kind of an interesting side note, and, and I hope I don't offend anybody here, but, but when we look at the, at the temple, there was, there was a big movement in the 70s and the 80s to help fund the restoration of the temple for the Jews that had returned to uh, Israel. 
The only reason the temple will be rebuilt is for the Antichrist to stand in it and declare himself as God. It does not require our giving. <laughs> okay? It doesn't require our money to do this. Uh, he's going to stand in this temple and sit in this temple and declare, I am God. How more blasphemous can you be? Exalts himself, even so-called uh, calls for the worship. And he says, do you not remember, uh, this is Paul again speaking, that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. It's the Holy Spirit restraining him. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and, and bringing to nothing by the appearance of His coming. This is the most fantastic Scripture as far as I'm concerned. Here's this Antichrist preparing himself as God. He's taking over the world. He's, he, he's evil. He's wicked. He's powerful. He puts to death whomever he cares to put to death. He's in complete control at the point in time. And then Christ comes along and when it comes face to face, it says that he will be, he will be put to death by the breath of his mouth, Jesus, and the appearance of his coming. In other words, Jesus is going to show up and this guy's going to lose his breath. And then Jesus is simply going to go, and it's all over for him. Now we find out in Revelation, there's one more thing that happens to him. He gets cast in the lake of fire. But what we have here is that here this powerful man, he, he has, you know, he is nothing in the sense of, of power and authority other than what he has managed to take, I believe, from the, the prince of the air in this world now which is Satan. And when Jesus appears, comes again, it's just... And it's over. This is, this is amazing to me because this tells us we rest with the... We're on the winning side, first off, and we rest with a, a Savior who is so awesome and so powerful that the most powerful enemy there is uh, that comes to, uh, to pass within the framework of the world, and including Satan for that matter. Satan can't do anything what? Without Jesus' permission. He wants to sift Peter. Jesus says he gave him permission, but he had to ask. He wanted to go after Job, but he had to ask. He, he can't do anything. Are you grasping how awesome the power of God is? And that we rest in Him. How awesome it is to have our salvation when we have a Scripture that says, and nothing can take it away from us. It's because God is all-powerful. There isn't anything that can stand against Him.
This Antichrist basically takes what Jesus rejected in Luke chapter 4. You know what happened in Luke chapter 4? I'm not sure how many of you would you know, instantly recall this, but Jesus is going out into the, the wilderness and He's tempted, it says, by Satan. And it says He was tempted in all ways. And it was tempted for, for you know, days and days and days. And then the final temptation is, you know, three temptations that have to do with the Messiah. But he basically what, what Satan was saying was, do this now, the people will come to you. And what he was trying to do was disrupt the cycle that God had planned to save man. And finally, he offers him what? All the nations of the world. He shows it to him in a vision. He says, see all of this? I can give this to you. Satan, at that point, had the power to do that. I can give this to you. And Jesus says, no, it's not, it's not the plan of God. It's God, man doesn't live by... By in this way, it's not from, it's not the way it's done, and he goes on about it, and and the Antichrist, I believe, is presented with the same opportunity in a sense. I will give you all of this if you will follow me, and that's what he acquires. That's a summation. It's it's a it's a, an assumption on my part, but I can see that happening. Christ will not return until the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's the end times. He's, and, what, and what we saw in this Scripture out of Second Thessalonians, He's the Son of Destruction. He takes His seat in the temple of God, proclaiming to be God. And then it says, uh, the, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So the Antichrist hasn't come, but it says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And I think a Scripture that helps us to understand that is found in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. What he's talking about is, is teachings here. Anything that teaches you about God... And, 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 and morality and this type of thing. He says, test it and see what its source of understanding and, and value is. Where, where does its moral setting come from? Because if it doesn't come from God, well, let's just see what he says. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. The spirit of the Antichrist, the teaching of the Antichrist, is already in the world. It has been in the world since Genesis chapter 1. Anything that promotes evil, anything that denies Christ. And by the way, this is important for us to get and understand in the way that our culture is 
has been really uh, led down the, the the path, so to speak, into secularism and humanism as a way of, of identifying ourselves. Secularism and humanism basically ultimately comes to the conclusion that we are our own God. We are we are to make our own decisions, and and anything we decide should be basically theoretically okay. If I were to go to a, a, a school board meeting and ask them, do you declare Christ come in the flesh? What would be the response I get? No, we do not. What does that tell us about public education? It's influenced by secularism, humanism. It is influenced by the, the things that would embrace the Antichrist, ultimately. Now, I'm not saying Christian education is evil, wicked, and all these kinds of things, and don't send your kids to the high school. Or I'm not going that way at all. All I'm saying is that we need to do what the Scripture says and everything that involves that what we do and what we let our kids do. and things, Test the spirit of it and see what it declares. See what its base is. Where it comes from in the sense of its, its moral standing. And it gives us the opportunity then to turn and train our children in what the Word of God says against those things. And some of the people in the public education, they're not going to want to, 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 to see or hear any of that. I know of a student who prepared a paper in their science class and in absolute perfect rote recall gave everything the teacher was looking for in the paper. Amazing detail. And then wrote an addendum and shared their faith about Jesus Christ and God the Creator and got a C. Until someone went on their behalf and spoke and said, I thought we were trying to raise up kids that could think for themselves. This is an addendum. I know you didn't ask for it, but it was just telling you what that person thinks. Did this person not give you everything you asked for in detail, in perfect order? Well, yeah. Paper got changed to an A. Our children, our world is in a battle. It's a moral battle. It's a spiritual battle. The son of destruction, as is, is, is Paul calls it, you know, this person who is, is, is in every way evil that is ultimately coming, his spirit is already here and it has been here for from the beginning. And we are in spiritual warfare with this in our culture. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about putting on the spiritual armor of God. 
I'll just suggest to you, if you want to read about that, go to Ephesians chapter 6 and read it. There is a a picture that we comes from us in the sense of what we as a Christian should look at, and that is the things that declare God. Do you realize that creation itself declares God? Read through the book of Romans, especially chapters 1 and 2, and you'll, and you'll see that. Uh, it, the, the amazing things that we find. Science, if it's looked at, and I believe objectively, ultimately declares God. Where is the beginning of all of this that, is, that we have? Where is the beginning? You know, somebody say, well, it came from this molecule, it came from this. Where did they come from? Well, it came from this, this, this. Where did that come from? There is a first cause. I had a teacher in, in high school in, in, in biology that talked about there is a first cause. I had no idea this man was a Christian. I didn't know what a Christian really would be. And, and it turns out, as later on, I found out that he, that he was a, a Christian man. Uh, after he actually had retired and I had visited him. And uh, he, you know, this idea that the, this first cause, that is who God is. And in the process of creating everything, man, because he went the direction of immorality, needs a redeemer. We need to be redeemed. We need to be purchased away from our sins. Even as we confess our sins, we still need a Redeemer. We need someone to save us. And so, Paul makes it really clear in Romans chapter 10. He says, believe in Jesus Christ. And if you believe in Jesus Christ that God raised Him from the dead, if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that Jesus is the Christ raised from the dead, you will be saved. And I think about going into communion with that concept in my mind. Because of what Christ did on the cross, and because my confession that I believe in Him and what He has done, and that He was raised from the dead and that He's coming again, I remember every time I share in communion, I am saved. How? By the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. He came in the flesh, was born into this world. He emptied Himself, according to Paul in the book of Philippians. He emptied Himself. Became a man. He became flesh. That's why we share the bread. To recall, He became flesh and His flesh went to the cross and He died. He poured out His blood and it covers us today. I want to close this morning just quickly looking at the book of Ephesians. Again, just amazing Scriptures. 
Let's let's do the the, the song for our communion song first. And and while the communion song is playing, we're still practicing self serve. And so we have the communion on this side. There's two cups, one stacked on in the other. Uh, there's the bread in one cup and the and the the, the juice in in uh, in the top cup. And all you have to do is just lightly twist them and pull them apart. And so, if you want to use that, you may. But we also have the communion in the packets. And so, if you are preferring to use the packet, you just peel the top part off, and there's the the bread. And then after we share in the bread, you pull the second part off and there's the, the, the juice there and the, the grape juice. So uh, we come up, pick these up. Uh, if you want, one of you can pick it up for two or three of you at a, at a, if that helps. Uh, but uh, while we're singing the song, I'd ask you to come and pick these up. Let's sing
Before we share in communion, I want to read these verses from Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as though as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us. With His grace which He has lavished, which means given in an abundance that's more than enough. Also in Ephesians, in the second chapter. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. For a result of works, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The God of all creation has brought us into a relationship with Him in such a way as to hold us and he, he, he can't, we can't be separated from that. That is such a comfort. We can't be separated from that. There's an antichrist spirit in the world. There will be an antichrist in the world. He's going to be powerful. He's going to do amazing things. It says in Revelation that between him and his cohort, the other beast, he will be doing even some miraculous things. But when Jesus shows up, and it's over because we rest in the Creator of the universe. We rest in the power of Christ and His words. And His promises. So every time we take communion, we're celebrating that. What a great rejoicing that is. What a great comfort that is. To know that we have eternal life in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let us share the bread. Paul goes on, he says, In the same way, Jesus also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is in the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Let us share. And when we proclaim His death, what we're proclaiming is the gift of His salvation. What He has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to be together this morning, to be in Your Word together and to share bread in the cup together. We ask, Lord, that You would be with us. Cause us to leave today 
resting in You with confidence that Your salvation has covered us. That there is nothing that can separate us from You. By the breath of Your mouth and the appearance of Your coming, evil is fully defeated. What an awesome thing it is to know that You have lavished Your grace on us. Thank You. We worship You. We praise You. We ask that You go with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close? And we do have some refreshments in the back if you uh, would like to stay and visit for a few minutes. And again, Lord bless you and thank you for being here this morning. It's my fault.